Have you had a busy week in the market? Not had time to catch up with the latest trends? Well, welcome to Cloud9fin, our suite of podcasts where we bring you the need-to-know information on deals, documentation, ESG, and we deep dive into themes showing up in the high-yield leveraged loans and restructuring spaces. We also have our US podcast, which features discussions with members of the North American Levfin market with US editor Will Cager-Smith. So be sure to check in every second Thursday for that. I'm Catherine Hidalgo, a loans reporter at Ninefin, and I'll be your host for today when we'll be explaining the restricted group concept, discussing creative KPIs in the context of Rhino Bonds and Unilever T, and chatting the financing of football with a focus on La Liga. But first, the Levfin Wrap. That's right, it's another week of crickets, as La Liga bonds priced late last week, as we'll be discussing later. And in loans, OptiGroup, our loan issuer from last week, was pulled. Our stellar scoop artist and loans reporter Laura Thompson reported on the pulling of a 515 million euro OptiGroup TLB from a truly grey market. This was despite attractive pricing and lender-friendly docs. Laura writes that OptiGroup has cited adverse market conditions and private debt funds needing more time to look at the deal, but analysts are disquieted by an unfamiliar sponsor, minimal organic growth, and a vulnerable position as a middleman supplier exposed to Amazon risk. The company benefits from strong market positioning, customer and supplier diversity, and high cash generation, but this was not enough to offset credit caution. In other news, LPC has also reported that Roden stock should be coming to market soon with a 170 million euro loan to back the acquisition of Indo Optical. Jefferies and RBC have that mandate. The add-on will be fungible with the ophthalmic device maker's 660 million euro TLB, paying E plus 500 pips, that priced at 97 last May. Next up, we have the Covenant close-up. Today, I'm going to be speaking with our lovely head of Covenant Research, Caitlin Carey. Thanks so much for being with us. Hello, Kat. Good to be here. So today we're going to be talking about the restricted group concept, which is going back to basics. So feel free to fast forward if you feel totally at peace with your Covenant knowledge. Uh, But first, I understand you have a few announcements to make about our legal department, Caitlin. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Kat. Um, yeah, so essentially our Ninefin um, team has been been growing. We're kind of expanding our bench of, of experienced high yield and leverage loan lawyers. And um, it, it, with, with that as well, we've been able to expand our content offering quite significantly and have started putting together what we've dubbed Ninefin educational content. Um, and in the past couple of weeks, in particular, users will have noticed that they've started seeing, um, you know, sort of alerts in their inbox for for sort of more deep dive content onto how the specifics of, you know, covenants are, 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 are structured, you know, sort of, you know, back to basics um, in, in some instances, but also, you know, providing a lot of color on, you know, what we're seeing in the markets, um, you know, what's, what's typical, um, and, and just trying to, um, you know, increase sort of general awareness about how covenants work. Yeah, that's right. Ninefin Educational has got some great feedback so far, especially for those more junior members of any Levfin team. And your department has already put out a few pieces. Is that right, Caitlin? This week, we had two pieces that came out. Um, One was on 
understanding unrestricted subsidiaries. And the other was on a related theme about the restricted group, how not all restricted subsidiaries are created equal. And um, one of those reports was um, by our, one of our new joiners, um, Christine Tognoli, who is co-head of European Leverage Loan Research. And one of the, the really, really important kind of foundational concepts of um, high yield and, and um, high yield style you know, leverage loan covenants is this concept of a restricted group. Now, a restricted group is generally, you know, something that if you're looking at a structure chart in an offering memorandum, for instance, um, they usually include like a dotted line um, around what they consider to be the restricted group. It's usually the issuer or whoever the parent guarantor or borrower is um, for that um, particular you know, instrument, um, as well as all of its restricted subsidiaries. And what this group then is, is this basically shows you who is subject to the covenants. So, you know, for instance, when you are calculating the the metrics that are used for calculating, you know, covenant ratios, covenant EBITDA, you know, this is the group that you're specifically looking at. Um, and also transactions that happen between the entities that are in this restricted group are, are generally not regulated at all by the covenants. Um, so anything that, you know, sort of moves is sort of intergroup loans, um, asset, you know, transfers, you, you know, things be- between these restricted subsidiaries or between the restricted subsidiaries and the issuers, that's all generally going to be fine under the covenants. Contrasting this with unrestricted subsidiaries. So I mentioned this restricted subsidiaries, which was, you know, something I, I glossed past initially. So what is a restricted subsidiary? By default, all subsidiaries of the issuer or borrower whichever entity is at the top co of the group, um, is going to be a restricted subsidiary. With the exception of subsidiaries that are designated as being unrestricted subsidiaries. Okay, so that raises a couple of other questions. So what is an unrestricted subsidiary and how do you designate it? So an unrestricted subsidiary um, is, you know, essentially the the sort of like flip side. So, so it sits outside the restricted group, not subject to the covenants. Um, and, and you sort of treat transactions, you know, between the restricted group and that entity as, you know, being subject to the covenants. So if, if the restricted group makes an investment in an unrestricted subsidiary or, you know, guarantees, um, you know, any of its debt, anything that happens between the restricted group and the unrestricted subsidiary is, is tested under the covenants. When you designate an unrestricted subsidiary, there's, you know, usually quite specific steps that are set out in the covenants for, for how you do this. Um, but the biggest one that is usually the, the limiting factor on this um, is that in order to designate an unrestricted subsidiary, you treat this as if you're making an investment in that entity, basically of the fair market value of the investment that the restricted group has in that entity. And so you have to then test whether you have investments capacity, you know, be that, you know, via your restricted payments baskets, permitted investments baskets, test that in order to make the designation. Um, There may be, you know, some specific cases around this, you know, perhaps there are unrestricted subsidiaries that are already designated at the time that the bonds or or loans 
um, are, are, are made, are issued. Um, and, and so in, in that case, you know, that would be, you know, set out in the definition of unrestricted subsidiary. So there are some case by case elements, but that's kind of the general structure of like what a restricted group is and what the unrestricted group or unrestricted subsidiaries are. Next up, we have Please Raise Responsibly, our ESG segment. Um, Today, we're going to be discussing Rhino Bonds. I'm here with Josh Latham, a credit analyst who focuses on sustainability-linked bonds. Is that the case? Yeah, that's it. (laughs) Thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Kat. Tell us a little bit about Rhino Bonds. Very catchy name. Who's issuing them? Um, What are the terms of this financing? Yeah, so interestingly... The World Bank issued the first wildlife bond recently, um, and it could be better described as a rhino bond. Um, the 150 mil US denominated issuance uh, will basically pay the returns determined by the rate of growth in populations of rhinos in two South African reserves. Now, in this deal, the issuer, which is the World Bank, will use the proceeds to help the conservation of the rhinos, whilst the bondholders will receive a payment based on the rhino's population. Uh, And just to give you a bit more detail, for the bondholders to receive the maximum payment, the population will have to increase by more than 4% per annum. Um, And as you may know, the black rhino is an endangered species with only about 2,600 left on the planet. So this is obviously a great initiative to support the species. Now this landmark issue goes to show that there's further creativeness yet to be unlocked within sustainable linked issuances. And luckily at Nyfin, we're now able to track and filter for these exact KPIs using our bond and loan screeners. Oh, very interesting stuff. Always loving a Ninefin plug on the podcast. Um, so I've actually been looking recently at Unilever T, uh, otherwise known as Ecoterra, and uh, there's a multitude of ESG issues on that one, um, not least including the workers that the company houses and trains on their premises. Um, so Ninefin has spoken to one buy-sider who actually suggested that they would like to see a KPI that measures how many of the workers' children uh, would end up attending school. I just thought that that was a very interesting and um, creative KPI idea. Uh, as an expert, Josh, do you see this as being feasible? And I'd also be really interested to know if you think creative KPIs are received well by the buy side. Yeah, so um, look, we've seen a range of creative KPIs, especially in loan documentation in the past year. So I believe this particular KPI could cross the line. Um, and in some respects, it's similar to the Teva Pharmaceuticals issuance, as they too didn't have great ESG credentials, yet their KPIs were linked to sustainability practices, which could benefit communities. Now, with this target, we'd hope that it wouldn't be attached to a step-down feature, as at the end of the day, we wouldn't want the issuer to be rewarded for having more children attend school. Um, this is something they should basically be promoting regardless of the target. Now, due to the infancy of sustainability-linked features, creativeness is allowed. Um, However, it does come to a point where we ask, are these targets tailored towards business practices and are they actually ambitious? Um, We feel the buy side often turns a blind eye to these targets due to there being little standardization in the area. And another reason being that the margins attached to these targets are so minuscule that they don't really warrant further analysis or pushback. So at the end of the day, when we analyze these KPIs, we wanted to see 
are the companies demonstrating a meaningful improvement in their sustainability practices or see that they're looking to promote better ESG credentials. Next up, we have the deep discussion where we discuss the topic a little bit more deeply. Today, we're talking about the business of financing football and I have with me our lovely senior reporter, Owen Sanderson. Hi there, Kat. Glad to be here again. So lovely to have you as ever. Um, so today we're going to be focusing mainly on La Liga. Um, for those who haven't been following the transaction, CVC will invest 2.071 billion euros in the competition to be distributed to clubs and to fund La Liga's growth initiatives in exchange for 8.2% of the distributable net income, a portion of the revenue from the licensing of AV rights. As has been well publicised, CVC has invested in a series of different sports competitions. Investments include Premiership Rugby, Six Nations, United Rugby Championship, Volleyball World. And the company has previously invested in the MotoGP competition, also out of Spain, through Dawn of Sports, as well as Formula One. I think you could easily argue that they're probably the most prolific sports private equity investor in Europe. What do you think? Absolutely. Um, we saw just at the end of March that they've signed an agreement um, with France's top football league, Ligue 1, um, and they were linked to the top Italian league, Serie A, um, at the back end of 2020. And that investment might uh, rear its head again. So the company offered 500 million euros in senior secured notes, which priced at a yield of 7.125%, as well as 350 million euros of FRNs, with a 5% rate at 97. An attractive rate, given the bonds rating of BA3 and BB from Moody's and Fitch, respectively, but we'll, uh, we'll touch a little bit on that later. Uh, the company offers a variety of attractive metrics, including high contracted revenue, a superior market position for La Liga amongst European football leagues, and an EBITDA margin sitting in the 80s since 2019. I think I also saw that their cash conversion rate was 99% for the past four years. Um, but despite all of this, pricing went wide of IPT. Owen, aside from the difficult market conditions, were there any issues specific to La Liga that made this syndication tough? The structure of the investment was was quite difficult. I think we at Ninefin had our own fair amount of brain damage trying to get our heads around it. Um, has elements of hold co-financing. Uh, CVC doesn't have direct control as they would in a normal LBO. Um, so there's a variety of complicated contractual provisions to kind of work through and understand, which is quite a high barrier to entry, um, which might have put off some investors. Um, the rating situation was also quite complicated. Uh, La Liga bonds had an instrument rating, um, as Kat mentioned, a uh, double B level, but it didn't have a corporate rating, which is the essential element for CLO investors um, to kind of calculate their internal metrics. Um, so it made it quite a challenging proposition for CLO accounts. Uh, my understanding is lots of them managed to get past that, but um, it, it wasn't easy. It's not, not a standard deal at all. Um, also, I think we should say that you can't just say despite the difficult market conditions. It was so bad on Thursday. It was so bad. Um, Goldman 
launched this deal and almost immediately US stock markets were down something like 3% um, within a couple of hours. Um, it was it was abysmal, really. And the fact that they managed to eventually wrestle this across the line um, is probably the achievement to focus on rather than, um, you know, an eighth, an eighth of a percent here or there <laughs> between friends. <laughs> Fairly glib of me to say, aside from <laughs> difficult market conditions. I, I mean, I spoke to buy-siders who said that they just weren't going to look at this one as well because it was just a little bit of a complicated deal and, you know, they've waited this long. Why shouldn't they just wait for something easier that just fits in with their investment pieces a bit more comfortably? The barriers to entry were, were pretty high, um, but... It's, it was only 850 million between the two tranches. There's been so little supply this year um, that I think there probably were quite a few accounts that were just keen keen to buy something and are willing to do the work on this. Um, I understand it was pre-marketed um, from the back end of Easter onwards uh, to around 20 accounts, and there was quite a good level of confidence before they went out. Um, that this deal was going to get done. So there's a question on levels, but there wasn't really a question on, is it going to happen? Can I ask why you think they opted for bonds over loans in the current market and why they went for a larger chunk of fixed rate bonds over FRNs? I think when this was originally um, contemplated and underwritten, it might have ended up as a fixed rate bond entirely. Um, you know, let's hark back to sort of just before closing in December and you know, you're getting double Bs with, with a two-handle sometimes or a three-handle. Um, and so I think it would have been executed purely in fixed rate. The FRN, I believe, was added later, gives CVC some optionality because they can call that uh, in just a year. So if they don't, if the market conditions have improved in a year, and fingers crossed on that, then they'll be in a position to, to refi that element. They actually increased the, um, the FRN from the original intention, so... I think that was that was the idea behind that tranche. With regard to the football sector as a whole, do you think that investing in La Liga is an attractive way to invest in the sector over specific clubs? Obviously, we've got people like Inter Milan in our universe. What you're really investing in here is media rights and how to market sport. Um, it has the sort of glamour and excitement of, of proximity to sport, but it's really a question of can you can you make the sport more valuable? And it's it's kind of a marketing question. If you're if you're buying a football club's specific debt, you're investing in can this football club stay at the top of its game. Um, you're investing in the one penalty kick at the end of the crucial match that ends in relegation or doesn't. Um, that's quite tense enough even if you're just watching it on the telly if you've got a lot of money riding on it that's that's even worse um, so investing at a league level um, gives a more diversified um, exposure to that media rights situation and uh, de-risks from the individual performance and I'm afraid that's all we have time for today on Cloud Mountain. Many thanks to Caitlin, to Josh and to Owen and of course to you too, listener. Tune in for the US edition next week and the European pod the week after. And in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music and Google Podcasts.